I mean, I've been talking about setting fire to comics quite a lot. I just want to, I just want to make sure that everybody knows that I like comics. I don't like setting fire to them at all. <laughs> it's just a, it's just a, it's just a figure of speech of getting rid of them. You could just put them in the bin if you want. I'm not some kind of uh, <laughs> like pyromaniac waiting to just light my first match. everybody and welcome to the final interview of the mpods creative interview month which was supposed to be february but the warren ellis month hasn't even been uploaded yet so let's just call it the interview month of a month in 2022 very unspecific and if you're listening to this maybe even in 2023 then we definitely definitely showed up on time and had them all uploaded on time as well so <laughs> uh, so tim's not with me today so hi tim when you're listening back to this and you can see what a shambles i am when i'm left on my own devices but we do have a guest and it's all brits today which actually makes me feel quite warm and special because i don't think of Maybe me and Brian have done one just between ourselves in the past, but there's usually Americans everywhere. So, without delaying any further, today with me is Dr. Alex <laughs> Packnadel. <laughs> and I think the most important question anybody could ask anybody in the last couple of years is, how are you? Uh, I mean, thanks, yeah. Um, I don't think anyone's called me doctor ever a lot other than my dad to kind of take the piss um, <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean i don't know man i mean it's been a couple of years isn't it i mean um <laughs> I've, I've put on about two stone and i think a quarter of that's beard oh just the um, two i managed six <laughs> i've lost a lot of air i've gone gray i've had covid have you had covid no i've not no but i i was um I've been pretty obnoxious about the whole thing, to be honest with you. I didn't I'm, even I'm go. To... So I thought I was obnoxious, you know, but I, it's yeah. bobbins, mate. You know, don't, don't yeah, get yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Um, how do, was it bad or was it asymptomatic? What was your dose like? I had quite mild symptoms. Apparently, this is a thing, right? I sort of developed like early onset arthritis. Really? So, uh, it's absolutely bobbins. I really wouldn't recommend it professionally it's been really weird because you know mm. might be the end of the world but i also like got like quite a few marvel gigs <laughs> in the middle of it and yeah i mean i was working on my first marvel one just like uh, so before the pandemic like mm. i mean no it was it was while it was happening but it was while everyone was like in you know it'll be fine <laughs> over by christmas so, we, you know, me and, and the guys in my writing studio, right? So, like, Ron V, Ryan O'Sullivan, yeah, yeah, yeah. and what is like, we all flew what out is... to Port Portland for, like, a retailer summit uh, called yeah, Comics yeah. Pro. And there were sort of rumblings about it then. And, you know, we were all sort of doing the sort of, you know, making making stupid jokes to kind of, you know, to, to, <laughs> not laughing nervously. And, yeah. and but while I was there, I was writing my first Marvel one shot. And I sort of had all these sort of grand plans for kind of, you know, all these signings that I was going to do and all, you know, <laughs> I've been waiting, you know, 25 years for this. You know, sort of professionally, things are sort of going, you know, I don't want to kind of over-egg anything, but, you know, like, you know, better than they had. That's a huge deal. It's the pinnacle, though, isn't it? The thing that I find quite interesting about Brits is, you know, there are Brits who kind of came up through american comics and there are yeah. brits who came up through 2000 ad and you know for a lot of them i think you know there are quite a few who if it was sustainable they just do dread forever oh yeah um, yeah you know dreads just got that really kind of puckish 
sense of humour that doesn't necessarily play. I mean, I think it plays increasingly well in the States because, you know, my dad taught me to read with sort of Marvel Treasury editions. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was always like everyone got a sort of a different sort of top of the pole. I mean, I've, I've still got sort of, you know, creator owned aspirations that I'd like to sort of fulfill. It's not that sort of exclusively, but it, it is just a weird thing to sort of have finally have that. A couple of credits where yeah, yeah. I can kind of ring up my old man and just go, do, do you remember like the Celestial Messiah? Kind <laughs> of, uh, do you remember the Celestial Messiah? And then, he, and then you know, he nips into the back room and then five minutes later kind of comes back with a stack of them and just goes, what this? Yeah. Yeah, what, like, yeah. Yeah, can, you, can, you, can you like help me out with some research for this? Yeah, no problem. So like my dad really wow. kind of helped me. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm an old man, I'm a dad, you know, but like he's a granddad and we're... God knows how many decades later, kind of, mm. you know, bonding anew over. I mean, that that really was the big thing for me. But let me put it, you know, it's important to me. It's really important to me. I've got those credits, but it's like a huge thing for my dad. We couldn't see each other. You know, I couldn't see my parents until sort of last summer. But I had a good sort of year of just sort of having a bit of a load of back and forth with my dad over all these sort of Marvel gigs that I was having. It's just a lovely way of kind of bonding with my dad, you know. I did two one shots for the Empire event. Like basically Al Ewing kind of put my, you know, threw my kind of threw my hat into the ring for those and just said, like, I think you can do them. They gave me these ones that were, they weren't sort of pivotal, but it was that they were very much, they almost kind of gave me the origin of the kind of conflict through these sort Mm -hmm. of two characters. I made sure that I did enough sort of research and sort of hard continuity that it would be accessible for new readers who don't care. But also, you know, if you did happen to be, reading Avengers in sort of 1974, you would, you know, the stuff that I was writing would sort of slot in quite neatly. You know, you could plausibly think of it as like a deleted scene on the DVD extras. Do you know what I mean? That's kind of the way I was kind of structuring it. Being an academic probably helps a lot with that, right? Narratively, people like Kieran Gillen, Cy Spurrier. um, Spurrier is an absolute goat. They have extremely nuanced and fully formed... Mm sort of schemas of storytelling and how comics kind of fit into that um much more kind of cloudy much more kind of I, w- I wouldn't even say heady they're just they're just kind of functional theories of story as they pertain to the comics medium you know that i've never kind of considered really i mean you hear them and they're kind of you know they're you know you just sort of accept them because they're so kind yeah. of plausible and compelling and sort of bulletproof yeah yeah critically but i think like the, the only thing that it sort of did for me really which is a lot of the academic stuff is just sort of david foster wallace's infinite jest it's just sort of following a kind of hyperlinked bottomless pit of citations um <laughs> and, but, but like that that's basically what continuity does. but the thing is i mean it, it, it's really interesting man like in the sense that you know i know sort of you know hard kind of continuity people but the thing yeah. is whenever you see any kind of you know and this applies to any mainstream character right if you you know any character with a history longer than 10 years if you look at their character bio if you treat everything as canon it all looks if once you see it kind of hyper compressed it's weird the only person i think who's ever successfully treated a character's entire history as canon and made it work is grant morrison with batman you know morrison's whole thing was all of it is canon even the kind of the weirdo you know, Batman of Zero and La stuff, you know, all yeah, of that yeah. stuff is canon. But he made it work because he's a genius. I beg your pardon, they are a genius. But, you know, I think, you know, Grant Morrison did that very, very yeah. successfully. But for the, for the rest of us, all canon for a character as sort of authoritative and citable, uh, like that way madness lies, you have to be selective. What was interesting for me, just as a sort of intellectual exercise with those sort of Marvel books, was sort of going, well, that doesn't really fit with that you know there's this kind of thing that happened in west coast avengers that kind of unpicks what i've done over here but there comes a point where the engelhart stuff has to be that's the canon that i'm going to yeah, apply yeah, here yeah. if this has to be retconned i just have to live with that the only continuity that annoys me is when you have ongoing titles that are contradictory so you've got jason aaron People may have heard of him. He's kind of a big name. Marvel's number one in 2015, you may say, after Bendis. That didn't last for long, though. So Jason Aaron's 
taken away the magic from Doctor Strange. It's done like a 15 issue arc. And then you have Civil War 2, which was an aberration from start to finish. Doctor Strange is leading the forefront of the battle line in the four final issues, jumping in the air with magic. Just have like a little file facts or something, or like computers. Just have, just have, just have a file that everybody just adds to what you've done with the character. Like things like that are really frustrating. It's interesting that you kind of say that. I mean, obviously, you know, I know a couple of these people. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of the time, no, no, no it, you know, it, it's um, it only hit me in the last two years because I've been dealing with. Mm smaller companies, the logistics of joining up a monthly line with dozens of titles, all I'll say is like, it's a miracle it doesn't happen more. Yeah. It's a miracle it doesn't happen more. And it's a, I think it's a testament to the unbelievable diligence principally of kind of editorial. You know, it, it's one of those weird industries, I think, where like, it's a mainstream medium that is, you know, on which multi-billion dollar franchises ride yeah. and derive all of their ideas but at core it's really like four people in a pub then it's a really weird for that it's i've never thought of that before it's at, crazy. at the bottom of all those billions of dollars and all those movies yeah the absolute end point is four people in a pub being really yeah. overworked another example of that all new or different era there was um, Drax and CM Punk, not Drax, Cullen Bunn and CM Punk did a Drax uh, maxi. It's about 12 issues. It was terrible. We spoke to Cullen Bunn. I told him I didn't like it. He was happy with it. We had a joke. <laughs> and then um, you had Wolverine, which Tom Taylor was, all new Wolverine that Tom Taylor was uh, writing. Now, Fing Fang Foon was in both of them. In one, he was a pacifist farmer. And the other one, he was tearing through New York breaking building that's forgivable because it's a secondary character even though it's completely like contrasting portrayals i think that's acceptable but like doctor strange not having any magic that's like a headline brian if you're going to use doctor strange just make sure we don't have no magic better still don't even use him mate <laughs> i don't like doing tie-ins anyway <laughs> You've got a doctorate in English, don't you? I think that's really, yeah. really intriguing. The, the influences from even your BA dissertation for Cronenberg's Fly, your PhD it was J.G. Ballard, and even your master's was like Philip K. Dick. And you can sort of see definitely with stuff like Arcadia, with sort of Cronenberg, more so like with Red Fork. It's like this Orwellian feel to a lot of the stuff you write. Obviously, with the licensed stuff, it's not quite it's easy to put your own stamp on it and, and actually that's it's quite a testament to you that they do seem quite so separate to your actual creator own stuff but um i was speaking to tim in the week and we were absolutely intrigued because i mean they are some of the most complex writers in you know western literature like um, with uh, Philip K. Dick, you've got like uh, nature of reality, human nature, altered reality, authoritarian states, with Ballard, post-apocalyptic dystopian modernity. Clearly, that would put you in a place of being a, quite a cerebral writer by nature. Do you find that you're having to filter, consciously dialing it back to what ends up on the final page with some of the themes that are in your mind? Um, I wouldn't say... <sighs> You know, I've, I've been really lucky in the sense that I've I've usually had editors, and it might be uniform, I don't know, but I've, I've, I've usually had editors who are quite indulgent. You know, there there have been a couple of occasions where I'll be honest, but usually the usually it gets kind of intercepted at the pitch stage, and I can understand it. There is a commercial imperative. If I want to go and do a golf and do three hundred page, you know, uh, psychosexual investigation of sort of you know neoliberal architecture, then I can do that. <laughs> but I have to pay for it. You know, I pay for that. No one else is going to pay for that. I'd, um, I'd pay for that's... it. That sounds <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, but that's exactly it. You know, like I can kickstart that. Or if I, yeah. if I if I want to kind of participate in a mainstream conversation, then yeah. I have to render those ideas intelligible and mm. dramatic. I mean, one of the things, the interesting things I think about Ballard, right, is that the thing that he's always kind of pushing again and again and again is the banality of violence. It's always, mm. you know, and, and it's funny, like when he does it, I mean, I'm so, sorry to any kind of listeners of a sort of sensitive disposition, but, you know, when he, that thing of, you know, having a very middle class dentist 
you know, just like he's just like you know, and you join him, and he's he's still speaking, you know, as though you know, just talking about the weather. But you know, meanwhile, he's cooking a dog. Um, <laughs> And he like he's, 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 he's kicked all of his neighbours' teeth out, and like he's he's put them in his own head and stuff. You know the thing that the point that Ballard's trying to make is that you know English manners are always masking a kind of profound wellspring of psychopathy and violence. The closest I ever got to doing that in comics was something I did called Friendo uh, for Volt, yeah, yeah. which was my, the, the most Ballardian book I think I've done. You know, the, the, the conceit was, I mean, it sounds a bit, you know, metaverse now, or maybe even sort of outdated, but the idea was that this guy who's got these sort of yeah. augmented reality glasses and um, he's, you know, instead of getting sort of push notifications and adverts, he just has this like, artificial intelligence buddy called jerry who just tra- keeps trying to make him buy stuff all the time um, <laughs> and it, it, it eventually en- you know ends up with them because he's like he runs out of money so he can't buy yeah, anything yeah. anymore they well, end up going on this massive crime spree um uh, and it's like a bonnie and Clyde thing but with sort of a virtual reality yeah. mate. Um, i thought we're supposed to be arriving well, yesterday I, I i wish i'd be able to join in on this one i was looking forward to oh, it <laughs> Yeah. Oh no, no, I don't mean for spoiling it. I just mean I was annoyed because do you know, like when because um, I work from home, I'm a structural engineer, so I've there's not been too much change for me in the last two three years. Like I've I've always been used to sitting in in a dining room with a with a computer in front of me, largely with myself for company. Which I mean, I think that's yeah. all I deserve because I know how all <laughs> the people seem to like my company over that amount of time. <laughs> so. Um, it's the it's that I know it's coming, and you sort of tiptoe and look just behind the door, and it's like, oh, it's not here yet. And then you don't. It's kind of like um, Schrodinger's uh, app, because Ooh. as long as I don't look at the Amazon app, it might be arriving today or it might not be. But as soon as I look at that app, then it's no, it's delayed. It's not going to get here till Saturday. <laughs> so. But sorry, Paul. Oh, yeah, completely. Oh no, not at all. Not I've read the synopsis man. anyway, so yeah, go for it. Yeah, no, I mean, but I mean, I, I would say like that that you know that 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 skewed pretty closely. I would say to sort of the research that I did for my PhD, like yeah. the the Arcadia, the first book I did, which was all about you know. Um, yeah, you know, like a sort of virtual reality afterlife, yeah. I guess. Um, but that was that was very that was very PKD inflected, and, and you know, I was I was sort of again I was sort of cannibalizing the research that I'd done years earlier for my masters for that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there have been little points where I'd say I've sort of cannibalized my academic oh. stuff for my fiction. I'll be a hundred percent honest with you, Alex. I struggled a little bit with Arcadia. It was almost like overlaying Blade Runner on top of the Matrix. Because, um, oh, I've just jumped out of my skin. Do you know what that is? That's Frendo, it's just arrived. Yeah, it is as well. <laughs> it is, it is. How funny is that? That's mental. I foresaw it and I brought it into existence. <laughs> you mad it, man. Do you mind if I propose something to you? And I, it's meant sure. in the best possible way. I think that you've probably had these ideas in your head for about 20 years, like basically being blue-balled by all these stories that you wanted to tell. And I think, I think you kind of wrote three stories at once in that. Yeah, maybe I'm just not smart enough. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I mean, I, I mean, if I had it to do again, I think I'd do it very differently. And I, I also think, you, I think you've pretty much nailed it, you know. I, that came out, what, that, like 2015. 2015. And yeah. it was the first year that I ever had. And there's, I think at, at that point, it's, you know, you're like a sort of eager puppy. You know, restraint yeah, doesn't yeah, really yeah. enter into it. You just want yeah. to, you know, the, the, I think it's, it's like, um, I mean, I can imagine it's like this when DJs get started, right? There's an abject terror of dead air. If you're not filling absolutely every available moment with some sort of, you know, wit or whatever, then, you know, you're not doing your job. And I certainly kind of felt that pressure on Arcadia. And it wasn't yeah. until, God, I mean, again, you know, I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't overestimate my abilities. I think that's healthy. Um, I don't think I'm there yet. I mean, I hope I never stop learning, but... I think I've got a, a bit better at 
restraining myself a little bit and and also you know frankly you know working with good editors helps as well because they'll be yeah, the ones yeah, who yeah. sort of go well you know everything that you've given me right ch- chuck out everything but the first paragraph there's your story sorry to kind of go off on a tangent but it's, it's one of no, the sort of attendant problems i think of like world building mm. and i know that we live in uh, a culture now where i think a great like a huge premium is kind of placed on world building but mm. unless you're kind of populating that world with people you care about, you don't really have a story, right? It's the thing like Andy Andy Diggle used to say to me, you know, it's like you know, the, the main acid test of a story, right, is if everyone goes home and nothing changes, you don't have a story, which is the most important lesson I think I've ever, I was ever, you know, I've ever been given. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of stuff in Arcadia where <sighs> – I just wanted, I just desperately wanted to impress everyone. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just desperately <clears throat> wanted to show everyone what I could do. And and it's one of those things where, like, you know, if someone does, like, if someone does 20 backflips in a row and doesn't land any of them, which is what happened to me with that, um, <laughs> or, or maybe land one, you know, all, all you're going to think is, you know, you're just like, well, what's that dickhead doing? You know, why are you doing that? <laughs> Sit down, have a drink, calm down. But, uh, you know, it, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's yeah, amazing to hear you speak so candidly about it because it's critically revered. Like, people love it. The sort of four people who've read it, I think, like it. But, um, <laughs> and two of them are here. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, at the end of the day, right, you know, it, it, it's comics, man. You know, even if I were to become a huge writer and huge creative, you know, at the absolute pinnacle of what I do, right, the guy who played, like, a corpse's stunt double in an episode of Blake 7 is, like, still going to have a longer queue than me at a convention. Mm. So you can't get an ego. It's pointless. You you read my stuff. If you have criticisms of that, then I think it behooves me as a responsible, hopefully responsible kind of creator yeah. to like to, to hear you out and to try and respond to that. And you know, it's it's my choice whether I choose to act on it or not. But <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, yeah. I, have, I, have, I have to listen. Like you, you pay my mortgage. <laughs> like. <I have> <laughs> Yeah. Like, You're a lovely bloke, actually, Alex. Like, I haven't done my research. I don't want to say it took me by surprise. But, but because you're quite political on Twitter, aren't you? And I thought, oh, bloody hell, this might be hard work, mate. And this, I was like, right, Tim, we need to be prepared. We need to, we need to like, pr- really, because I think this one might be a little bit difficult. Are, are you ever worried? A little, that... a little bit spicy. No, <laughs> are you ever concerned about how a persona can come across? Because there's no tone... Uh, like context and tone, it's 240 characters, especially like when it's just retweeting other people's stuff. Do you ever worry that Twitter, how easy it is to be represented, misrepresented on Twitter? For, for, for me anyway, like it, it would be weird to say nothing. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've pissed on my chips before, I think, with it. Um, mm. But I, I mean, I do, I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't sort of try and sort of intersperse it with a few cock jokes, because I do. Um, <laughs> you know, just, um, I mean, everyone was excited about that. The Ross and Rachel, uh, Pat Nadell and the new pen situation was a particular highlight. That's a big cut. You know, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I try to sort of leaven it a little bit because, but also yeah. it's, it's the thing. I think, you know, I have had sort of conversations with people before where it's been along the line. And, and I, I, do, I do take the point, right, which is that, so, you know, you say all this stuff rather than just sort of using your sort of socials megaphone, really, or as a sales funnel. But yeah, yeah. what do you hope to achieve, you know? Because it's, it's that thing, I think, isn't it? If you follow me on any of these channels, right, chances are, like, if you really objected to my worldview you just wouldn't follow me, right? So, like, the whole time, all I'm really doing is kind of preaching to the choir. So, yeah. and so, like, the only response you're ever going to kind of get is kind of like, yeah, I agree with that, yeah. um, which isn't functionally useful. It's certainly not. Do you think it's healthy? I don't think any, no, I don't think social media is healthy at all. Mm. We, I don't think as a species we were ready. I don't think we ever will be ready to really know what people think. I mean, I, I forget where I read this, but it's someone much, much smarter than me. But, you know, someone said that, you know, we've hit a, we've hit a point in civilization now where we have 
the technological capabilities of gods, um, all of our institutions are medieval, and our brains are basically still hovering somewhere around like the Bronze Age. Everything that enables you to think beyond the scale of a village is basically Mm. a prosthetic. You know, mm-hmm. and it's why, I mean, interestingly, I mean, there's all sorts of kind of studies into this, but it's like, if you show, if you show a boatload of refugees, it's very, very easy to demonize them because all people see is a mass of people. Whereas mm. if you show one refugee child in distress, mm. right, one is sure. there's infinite, everyone, every, oh, Jesus Christ, but like, but everyone gets it because mm. it's been individualized. Mm. Whereas, you know, if you just show like a crowd, you know, our brains aren't wired to kind of empathize with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I mean, I don't disagree. I don't think it's na- naturally um, empathy, but I think it goes back to what, like how our brains are wired, like bigger yeah. groups of danger. Oh, yeah, no, like, this, is not, this is not a question of like being like hard hearted or anything. Yeah, I, yeah. I just think it's like, it's, you know, it's neural architecture. And I yeah. think that one of the things that social media does is it kind of, it forces us to engage with the world in a very faithless way. My old account on Twitter, I, I got up to about, I don't know, it was over 24,000 followers at one point, but it was like I was preoccupied with it constantly. And I was like, what am I doing it for? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here, right, typing stuff about comics. I've got, I've got a backlog of like two feet high of stuff to read, and I'm spending more time typing about them than I'm reading them. And also the pressure of staying current because I felt like anybody gave a fuck what Matthew thought about the next, like, put Matthew Rosenberg Punisher issue. Like, everybody's just sitting there on their phones waiting for it to drop when they fuck. It's like stripping the enjoyment out of this, like, trying to keep up. And with Marvel as well, like, this the pull list, again, Civil War 2, and I'll I might even just do a ceremonial burning of that out the back because I'm never going to read them again. <laughs> but... oh, don't burn books, man. Don't burn books. That's a, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'll be completely agnostic burning of books. There'll be no political or uh, emotional, oh no, it'll be very emotional or um, religious undertone. Uh, at that time, I think the whole thing was like 146 issues and my pull list had got up to something like, I think the most it hit was like 120 in one month. It's unsustainable. I don't buy singles anymore, which is a shame because that's like, I mean, that's the best way for you guys to get remuneration for the for the copies, isn't it? Buying the upfront singles. Uh, it's certainly, if you you know, I think for longer running things, yeah, like it's you know, but by the same token, like a sale is a sale, you know. I mean, I appreciate right. I appreciate it all. Just space wise, trades are better, like collected editions, and they just look good on the shelf, don't they? The trade itself becomes fetish. Like, you know, I mean, I've got like a, yeah, yeah, I've got yeah, a bunch yeah. of absolute editions back there and stuff. And, oh, they're great, aren't you know, they? I've got the Mad- Mattachelli Artisan Edition of Broad Again and stuff. And that they themselves become kind of fetish objects. And I, I think it's just, it, it speaks to, again, like a particular kind of cognitive dispensation. Again, so, sorry to get very pretentious, but I think there's a lot of truth in this, man. There's a lot of truth in this. But like there's a Baudrillard quote that I remember from the System of Objects where he says, the collector collects himself. And I think there's a lot. Right? If nothing else, if this is an absolute shambles of a podcast, that is my takeaway. Because there's the thing. is like, well, when am I finished? And then the answer comes back, well, when you die. Like, yeah. that's when you're finished. Because, you know, Superman's still going to be running, man. Like, Spider-Man's still going to be running. You're never going to finish it. It's, never it's horrible, isn't it? Um, it's I horrible. Don't know. Like I'm not. I, no, I th- I find I, I like genuinely. I take great comfort in it. Like I take great comfort in the fact that like Spider Man's going to outlive me. That's fantastic. You hit a point and it's not yours anymore. You know, there's like a generational ticking over, and it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to someone else. There's going to come a point where like Spider Man just isn't for me anymore. It's not meant for me. It's not being written for me. It's not designed to appeal to me. And that's that's great concept itself is so durable that it can cross generations and mean something completely different. My son watched into the Spider-Verse. For him, Miles Morales is Spider-Man. Who's this Peter Parker? <laughs> That's, That's, That's so really cool. Uh, you know what I mean? And, and like, I, I don't know. It, it, yeah, but... It... I feel charmed by just hearing that. No, it is. It's fantastic. Are you ever conscious of 
having inclusive casts because there's a very tight line being inclusive or are you worried of people calling appropriation? The only times I think I've ever been kind of called out is when I got lazy and that's fair enough. But I think there are some people for whom you absolutely have to sort of stay within what you know. And I could appreciate that as a concept. Mm. Whenever I've kind of attempted to do that, there's been a lot more kind of forbearance and a lot more patience when there's a sincere effort to kind of yeah, get yeah. the detail right. The one thing that isn't to be tolerated and mustn't be tolerated, here I've got a checklist. You know, I'll use that as a proxy for research. Yeah. Um, I was having a conversation with Philip Kennedy Johnson about this the other day, man. Like, he and I will absolutely obsess over which parts of the US refer to, like, lemonade as soda and which ones refer to it as pop. Because right. it matters. If you're from rural Virginia and someone uses the wrong one, that breaks the illusion, right? That mm. breaks the very similar food. It pulls you out of the story. Nobody wants that. But I remember one of the first things Cy Spurrier ever said to me, uh, you have to make a decision very early on whether you want to stand in front of the work or behind the work. It's not a kind of qualitative thing. You know, it's not a criticism. There are some writers where you have to go through them to get the work. They're a very big personality and you have to go through them to get to the work. I think my job, as much as possible, is to disappear. If you have to engage yeah. with me to get to the story, I, I don't think I'm doing my job very well. No? Yeah. Do you know Elliot Rahal? I don't, pal. I don't. Very good writer. He drove me around Chicago like when I was out there, what, four years ago for C2E2? He used to be a tour guide there, right? And he, he drove me through those tunnels that you remember in Dark Knight where like the, the, yes. the, the, the you know, the tunnel blows up oh, and everything. Wow. He drove me through those tunnels. And he said, right, this is the only one road in the world that goes north to south, east to west. Because like all of Chicago is like honeycombed with these subterranean right. roads that just go, you know, under the river and stuff. Okay. And I said, well, how the hell did that come about? And he said, well, basically the sort of the city fathers in the Victorian period, they realized that this would eventually become essential for their trade. And they've done all sorts of weird stuff, man, like, with, you know, reversing the flow of the Chicago River to take away a load of cholera what? and making sure that it ended up in St. Louis and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> but, um, That's hilarious. But here's the thing, right? He said um, it was part of a hundred year plan. Mm. And this was before, you know, like, the American kind of robber barons and stuff. Mm. But the thing is, what's really interesting, or what I took away from that, was, like, because I was just thinking, man, like, they had a plan that exceeded their own lifetimes mm. to basically secure the future of their own businesses, which didn't work, by the way. You know, their businesses are kind of long defunct. But they put something, you know, like um, Bazalgette with, like, the London sewers. You know, the, the grand projet, right, the idea that you're going to kind of put something in motion that is going to exceed your own lifetime. I don't think that's within the corporate, the modern corporate lexicon. No. You know, this idea that like, do you know what, we're just going to build a road to the moon because we might need it one day. That doesn't happen anymore. It's quarterly cycles, you know, and, and, yeah, I, yeah. and I think that that, that that very kind of economic reality that, you know, proof of concept has to be proven to shareholders on a three monthly basis fundamentally militates against global long term sort of thinking that is sort of being mainstreamed. I don't see how it stocks with kind of modern economic kind of reality. Do you know what I mean? Because like nobody's thinking beyond the next quarter. Like have I have I made as much money as I possibly can this three months? Yes, fine, right, I'll go to bed. Bye. You know, I, I don't see anybody thinking beyond that, you know? And we've sort of seen that people don't own anything now. Like we've seen it with hard copy media. And that's one thing to sort of bring it back to comics that I think we can be incredibly proud of. And I think the MCU's helped it a lot. And and I, I actually like what NIDA did with the DC stuff, which I know is controversial, but I, I quite liked it. That it's grown every single year, except the year that followed Rebirth, the year when nobody sold comics. And that's going on for almost a decade now. There's been a steady growth. It's passed a billion dollars for the first time, um, which is like an additional MCU film like as an industry yeah. you know there was a borders i used to love going to borders 
you could have a look around like the graphic novels, the books, but they've gone. Blockbusters is long gone, but comics is still here and it's still growing. And for you as well to be part of something that is that is maintained and persevered through like this great change into digital media. It's kind of priced in though, isn't it? Because I think like the physical artifact is so integral to it. It's almost, you know, borders on sort of our ownership. It's a funny thing because, I mean, I remember having a sort of conversation with Nick Brokenshire about this like a long time ago, just what we thought digital was going to do. The marginal cost of digital goods is zero. But the thing that I think like comics weirdly sort of lost was disposability. And you can even see that reflected in like comic art has become, you can barely believe that they're kind of put together in a month. And sometimes they're not, you know, sometimes they have these enormous lead times. But as a sort of monthly artifact, you don't have that going down to the drugstore and sort of paying over 50 cents. I mean, interesting thing. I think it's 8 cents or it might be 12 cents, but let's go 12 cents. For the um, my dad was showing me Marvel Comics number one, which I think was 1939, maybe 60 pages, something like that. Fantastic Four number one, which I think was 1961. That was the same price as Marvel Comics number one. They were absolutely adamant that it had to be a pocket money proposition. And so what they did was to basically keep the price under inflation they lowered the page count and mm. i don't think it was until like the oil shock in the 70s where they actually started aggressively raising the price but this idea that like 22 pages is like the most organic kind of form of mm. the comic isn't accurate um, do you know why that was but, one of the reasons why that was when they sent them to print marvel only had six six spots on the printer and i think because dc yeah. had been more uh, predates marvel it, it took them ages to get the trust from the printers to get more than those six spaces wow i find that stuff interesting man like really do yeah sorry if we say that inflation but let's just say a typical 3.5 percent inflation takes 19.6 years for something to double in price yeah. at that 12 cents in early 60s we're still not hit a dollar with just natural inflation today man we're still not hit a dollar there you go but isn't that interesting? Where's the sort of psychological barrier between what we may call convenient term a floppy and a trade in the sense that like mm. neither of them is now the disposable form. Mm. They are both art objects with that intrinsic value built in. You're getting these incredibly kind of painterly artists and they are, I love that word. They are not. I mean, you know, what, why, are, why are copies of, you know, Action Comics number one so very difficult to obtain? The reason they're so very difficult to obtain is because most people threw them out. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> most people threw them out. You can still get X-Force number ones for a pound, two pounds on eBay because there's so many of them. The best thing anybody could have done is everybody buys 100 issues and set fire to 99 of them. I mean, I've been talking about setting fire to comics quite a lot. I just want to make sure that everybody knows that I like comics. I don't like setting fire to them at all. <laughs> it's, just a, it's, just a, it's just a figure of speech of getting rid of them. You could just put them in the bin if you want. I'm not some kind of uh, <laughs> like pyromaniac waiting to just light my first match. I, I do sort of wonder about enforced scarcity. You know, obviously, like original art is kind of at the top of the pyramid, right? Yeah, yeah. In terms of you, know, you have an absolutely unique item. And somewhere below that, you have like in-store variants, you know, very limited run variants, that kind of thing. There, there was this, you know, and this was around about the time that, because you had a few sort of digital platforms sort of vying for supremacy and obviously, you know, Comixology one Around about that time, I mean, I remember just walking the, sh the, the floor at the Jabbits and, and there was this one guy who had a comic that he had made the paper himself, screen printed it himself with inks that he had made, and he had saddle stitched it himself. So basically absolutely every component of this comic mm. that he had made was him, from the writing to the art to the paper to the ink, yada, yada, yada. It was a completely like artisanal object. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember what he was selling them for. It was a couple of hundred bucks a pot. And there were like maybe four copies of this thing. Honestly, like I just found it absolutely fascinating because it was like, well, on the one hand, you know, you have this, the potential of digital for basically just, you know, infinite scale, infinite ubiquity, mm. infinite availability. But then you also have the, the comic as the comic as art fetish. Yes. Right. From here's something where, you know, it doesn't make a difference whether you're sort of distributing 10 copies or a billion, it's going to cost you exactly the same amount. Or you have, you know, this thing that, you know, this guy might as well have just bled into. 
you know like you see that with a lot of the kind of the vinyl you know the vinyl resurgence man when we were kids you know nobody would piss on vinyl if it was on fire we're back mm. to burning stuff again but like what are you listening to that kind of poppy snappy crackly bollocks for you know you want cd for that kind of perfect fidelity or mini disc yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 but now those pops and crackles have become markers of authenticity yeah yeah it's like no it's real because there are imperfections the comic as artifact you can smell it it's different i don't have an answer i just find it fascinating you have periods of wholesale embrasure of the new of like no we're going to embrace all these kind of technologies we're going to run forward into a kind of bright future and then when when things sort of culturally when there's a system shock everyone kind of seeks refuge in an older form they want the newsprint stain on their thumbs. They want it, you know, they yeah. want the kind of the smell, the pop and crackle on the vinyl, you know, they want it because it feels truer. It, it's mm. it's a nostalgic impulse, you know? I just like how visceral having something in your hands and turning the page, and I don't know why it is, the art just seems to pop better on paper. I, I don't know why that is. And the irony of it is, is it's all created digitally now. When you're reading it digitally, you're actually seeing it in its original format. That's a really interesting point. You are seeing it natively, aren't you, when you're reading it basically on an iPad? You're yeah, that, that yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, curiously, like, I mean, I think it, where I think you sort of see that at its most kind of, at its clearest, when things get recolored. I've got a copy of, of Absolute Batman Year One up there, right? And what they've done with that is really interesting. They've got one hardcover that's been, like, professionally recolored on very, very high quality paper. But they've also got another trade that is the original color, color, the original colors on newsprint. You've got the version as it was presented, you know, in whatever it was, like 1986 or whatever. I'm, I'm probably butchering that, but maybe 1987, I don't know. But you've also got, here's basically the remaster. Whereas nine times out of 10 now, you're just given the remaster. Sometimes you sort of look at the originals. There's no sort of magical aspect to it. It's not necessarily the smell of the paper this paper is absorbing these colors in a certain way it's less aggressive on the eye it's a very very strange effect and it's quite i think there's, there's a lot of kind of uncanniness to it but there just sort of seems to be this point sort of after about maybe like maybe like in the late 90s where comics on glossy paper just made sense and the whole color separation mm. on glossy paper just makes sense and if yeah. you were to put that on newsprint it would look like it wouldn't look right but I think maybe the kind of the reverse is true. We're getting into like the real sort of um, kind of niceties, I think, more sort of vaporous notions of like authenticity, whether it sort of resides completely in the mind or whether it's actually a kind of physical property. I mean, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm obsessed with this stuff. I mean, I could bang on about it for hours, but like <laughs> there are artists who it suits more than others. Totally remastered Kirby to me looks wrong. Just looks yeah, wrong. Yeah, it does, doesn't um, it? Whereas, like, remastered, like, Simonson, for instance, you know, it could have been drawn yesterday. A funny thing about Kirby, um, I've, I'd said this to Mike Del Mundo last week as well, so apologies for the repetition for the listeners. What? But, uh, but um, <laughs> with Kirby, he would do so much detail. I can't remember who his, his inker was that he worked with consistently. But he, he would put in so much detail in his pencils that the first thing the Inca would do would be like, well, it's turn his pencil upside down and rub out half the detail on the building. So it was just the outline. And apparently, because there was such a churn, like you were talking about, disposable, that one's done, onto the next issue. It took him five years to realise that his Inca was rubbing out half of his work. Was this Mike Royer? It might be. I can't remember. I can't remember off the top of my head. But I mean, it it, it sounds right. But yeah, yeah. that is fascinating. No, no sorry. Like, yeah, I mean... and it's still detailed though, isn't it? Like it's still incredibly detailed. The, the one that got me the other day though was like I picked up um, a load of a load of copies of of the Rook, uh, which is like a, one of those Warren magazines. Because um, okay. it's got it's got a load of Alfredo Alcala. It's half sort of Gustave Doré, like half Albrecht Dura. You know, they're just like these incredible, like hyper detailed woodcuts, you know. Mm-hmm. And like you can really see the influence, like when he, when he inked over Busima on Savage Sword of Conan. The most absurdly detailed stuff. I mean, I was just looking at this stuff, just like drooling, you know. A fan of his reached out and just went, Yeah, you do know that, like, at his peak, he was doing 12 pages a day. What? What? That's 12. Insane. It's insane. But like, that's like, that's Kirby level, man. Like, you know. Mm. 
I would associate that with like a mangaka, manga level stuff. Four hours penciled in for sleep. <laughs> <laughs> manga scares me. Manga scares me. I don't have enough time to read. I, I can't. Like I knew what I know what would happen, especially as a newcomer. I'd be like, oh my god, this is amazing, and then I'd need, I'd, I'd, I'd have another credit card. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it wouldn't just be and then all of a sudden that lovely living room that i made will just be stacks and stacks and stacks of unread comic books it's a weird one with kind of manga as well because i mean i was talking to someone the other day in traveling man in manchester who said you know the worldwide paper shortage is probably manga <laughs> they just can't keep it in print man like it's just selling like so crazy i got a, a full set of chainsaw man and that was like a pretty penny um but there's just there's just stuff if you're not day and date if you haven't got it pre-ordered you know yeah. you're a bit screwed you're a bit screwed really i think image books are going that way as well because you know again because there's a worldwide paper shortage mm. um second prints at the moment are off the table so you know if you're not quick enough to get in for yeah. that kind of initial run um, you're waiting for the trade, the end, you know? Mm. I mean, it could be worse, don't get me wrong, it's just not being down the mines or anything, but, like, it, it's still... Yeah, it's all contextual through your own experience as well. It's still an interesting situation. Yep. First of all, thank you very, very much for, for making yourself available. It's been an absolute delight sharing the time with you. Um, and on that note... Oh, I want to, uh, the one last thing, oh, and it's sure, not yeah. something that you, did, um, you, you don't need to add anything. We did an end of year, uh, end of year, end of year show where we did like um, top three, whatever, whatever, and we had the cast or vote, and we had Chris Condon um, guesting on it, and he picked Black you King, yeah. of one of his favourite, of one of his top three writers for 2021. Oh, blimey. <laughs> That's nice of him. What a lovely guy. Have you seen um, um, Sean? Because obviously he works with uh, Jacob Phillips, Sean Phillips' son. Um, yeah. Have you seen the Sean Phillips library? It's supposed to be legendary. Yes, but I saw it in an earlier iteration. I'm meeting Sean at the pub tonight. Um, I will get in my car this instance. How I met Sean was, mm. um, God, this could have been about, what, 2005? Really? Like, um, he was doing an open studio as part of a Lake District Dark Trail. It was terrible. It must have been so sort of disrespectful because, you know, all we kind of cared about was just sort of meeting Sean. We rocked up and he kept in touch with us. Bless him, you know, because he's, he's such That's a lovely cool. bloke. But like, even then, before he put everything sort of in the lock, he had this like absolutely insane. And it was one of those things where like it just turned into a game where I'm just going like, what, oh, the new English library Dracula, you know, <laughs> Uh, from like, 1976 and he would just like reach his hand out without looking and <laughs> um, amazing uh, was, i mean my setup's all right my setup's all right i've got some good, i've got some fairly kind of deep cut stuff that you know if it gets right down to it you know can sort of put out some blinders but like i mean sean's is just absolutely astonishing you know it's like jonathan hickman's got this kind of i think it's like a cartier mobius uh right. exhibition catalog um, that's like hardcover and everything and like I found one on eBay I think for like I mean I'm not I'm not even I think it was about 10 grand um, and like I showed it to Sean and I was like have you got that and he was like no and I'm not going to get it 10,000 pounds yeah man something like that yeah like about 10 grand or something but like honestly it was it was absolutely I mean it's, it's hard enough to get Mobius stuff particularly in English Isad Ribbit did something very similar. He's so all, good, all different. Man. Oh, he's, he's unbelievable. So what he did with Thor. Louis Vuitton were doing a series of travel books, and he did one on Hawaii. Didn't Jiro Tanaguchi do one for Venice? Yeah, I think I know that. Yeah, there's a load of ones like that, aren't there? Like, um, uh, there's a Hong Kong cartoonist I really love called Kong Ku, mm. who did a little zine for Blur for their Magic Whip album. Really? And it's, it, I mean, it's beautiful, right? And the colours, mm. there's a real toothiness to the colours that's just absolutely, like, it's just a Hong Kong comic, like, you know, like proper beautiful manoir, right? Mm. And um, and I was looking for a copy for ages. I ended up doing, <laughs> I ended up doing a graphic novel for Graham Coxon from Blur, right? For, for a company called yeah, Z2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
yeah and, and like you know don't be wrong like a, you know I, I co-wrote it with helen milan good friend of mine you know we had a great time you know i got to talk to graham a couple of times it was great but like honestly the whole time i'm basically just like every time i spoke to his pa i was like so have you got any copies lying around i mean just out of interest i mean, <laughs> I mean if, if, they're, if they're just propping up a desk or something i mean you could post me one maybe and she was like oh yeah i don't think we've got any left yeah, I mean, you know, if you wanted to like pay me <laughs> with one of them, I mean, that that would be okay. I mean, I could live with that. <laughs> but, like, the, like, the true kind of pathetic, like forelock tugging thirst of just like, I'll let you pay me in comics. Just give me this <laughs> thing that I want. <laughs> It'll go away. Oh, fantastic. We'll um we'll we'll call it there because uh, I know you you've given us much more of your time than you expected and it and it's really really appreciated. Absolutely love speaking to you, Alex. Thank you very much for for being here with us today. Sorry for talking ten ten to the dozen. I've had too much coffee. I appreciate it. No, that's fantastic. No, you're very insightful. It's great. And that, as always, only leaves me with one thing to say: we have been, and this is the end. <laughs> Good stuff, pup.